All right, this is Tony Held, and you're listening to The Medical Director's Always Right. I am joined, of course, by Dr. Josh Stilley. Would you like to say hi? Hello. Uh, so a short little back and forth on our last recording session uh, resulted in the EZIO CBCEMP shorty. That shorty, combined with a massive push uh, at my service to start placing humeral head IOs, has really made uh, some waves. And... It's actually been kind of awesome. It's fun to, to get into that with uh, some of our first responders and when they're asking us, you know, why are you doing that? Um, now, one thing that we did kind of uh, miss out uh, was really the, uh, the data, the research, uh, and really the, the reasoning behind that placement. Um, there's been some question as to whether uh, humeral head placement of IO is fact or merely opinion. Um, before we dig too hard into that, though, I did want to talk about humeral head placement technique. Uh, I got a comment about our last podcast on EZIO uh, requesting that we uh, discuss uh, best practice on identifying placement. Um, so I think we'll probably do some videos, uh, but Dr. Stilly, would you talk us through your technique for placement of humeral head IO? Oh, so one of the things that, uh, or the way I was taught was to put the hand kind of on the umbilicus and that's about the right position for the uh, positioning. One hand goes between the deltoid and the pec in the front and then the other hand goes just on the lateral part of the shoulder. Where your thumbs fall is going to be about the location of the um, humeral uh, uh, tubercle or where a lot of the uh, muscles attach. Just medial to that is the biceps tendon groove, the bicepital groove. If you rotate your arm lateral, you'll feel your hand fall into that groove, and you come back medial, and it goes back up on the tubercle. We want to go into the tubercle as much as we can because there's not many structures there, and it gives us a little bit better anchor in the bone uh, to go. Now, the exact position of where the hand is when you do that doesn't matter. So one of the questions providers have asked is, can the hand be down when we do that? Absolutely. Just have the hand internally rotated and it'll open up the tubercle into the same spot. And realistically, most of the time, I don't even move the arm around. I just kind of feel around until I feel the tubercle and then go there. Going a little bit medial gets into the biceps groove. Try to avoid that because it can lead to a biceps tendon rupture if you're too medial. But going lateral doesn't have a whole lot of problems with it. So if you cheat a little bit lateral, that's okay. You're not going to run any, any, into any significant nerves or vessels. If you go a little bit lateral, um, the bone will be just a little bit thinner, but that's probably okay. Like always, put the needle perpendicular to the skin. So if you have to angle up or down, left or right a little bit to get perpendicular, that's okay. And then hold the trigger on the IO once you get to the bone. Hold it until you feel it go through and then let go. The nice parts about the humeral head IO um, gives you a wider marrow uh, space, so more surface area for the absorption. And then uh, that also is a bigger depth, so the chance of backwalling the IO is less than in the tibia. So what Dr. Stilly mimed out there a little bit is what the arrow rep refers to as the karate chop technique. So if you have uh, been taught the karate chop technique either by the rep uh, or by myself, because I regularly call it that, uh, you're chopping down kind of at the midclavicular line, chopping down at the mid-axillary line, and then bringing your thumbs together. When Dr. Silly was talking about that slot that opens up as you uh, rotate that arm, if you find the correct placement on yourself and really bury that finger, uh, it actually kind of hurts. Um, so that's a pretty good indicator on yourself uh, or on a friend that you found the right location. If you really bury your thumb into that uh, spot, it's pretty uncomfortable. 
Uh, one of the things that I found as far as humeral head placement uh, that I didn't expect uh, was that a little more drill time. Um, so if you're doing a tibial I.O. in the way that the rep teaches you, uh, you're just holding that trigger, letting the weight of the drill do the work, uh, and then as soon as you pop into that space, you let off. Uh, and I compare that a lot to sinking wood screws. So you kind of uh, hear that high-pitched whine, and then it immediately changes tone as you get into that pocket. On the humeral head... I have certainly found that it takes a little more uh, drilling to get through uh, that bone. And to be honest, from a pre-hospital provider standpoint, it's actually a good thing. I know you're sitting there thinking like, well, I don't want to do it because it takes longer. But in all reality, that's more bone to anchor that needle in. So if you've got some big burly firefighters tossing your patient around, because certainly we're not big or burly, um, that needle is going to have a little more... Uh, anchor on it. Uh, it's going to stay in place for you a lot easier. One of the other things that I found uh, in doing that humeral head IO is just like Dr. Stilly was saying, keep that arm uh, down next to their side and turn it in towards them a little bit and then that arm can live there. A lot of people think when they put that humeral head IO, uh, especially in that cardiac arrest patient, that that arm has to lay on top of their belly, uh, which is not uh, particularly convenient for that auto pulse. Uh, but I can tell you from personal experience, auto pulse plus humeral head IO plus a uh, uh, mega mover tarp, uh, just a, a handled tarp laying around them, uh, is really a compact and secure package. Um, so definitely consider the logistics of placement, um, but know that, uh, at least from my personal experience, actually easier than tibial IO. And that's what the Australians have been saying for years is that they have less complications associated with that humeral placement uh, versus tibial, which we commonly in the U.S. have kind of had the reverse thought on it. But I think it's just because of the willingness to uh, investigate that site. Okay, so let's talk about the Easy IO product specifically, since I think that's probably the most common IO placement uh, device on the market. Uh, what are the approved sites according to Arrow? So the approved sites uh, would be the proximal humerus, the proximal tibia, the distal tibia, and then um, possibly the distal femur. I get asked about sternal IOs. The Easy IO is not okay for the sternum. Absolutely not. Especially with that 45 millimeter Yeah, needle. 45 to the sternum is not an okay thing. Correct. Um, so did you want to comment a little bit on the, the data regarding each site? And I think probably focusing on tibia versus humeral because yeah. those are the two mainstay uh, locations, especially for pre-hospital. Yeah, so tibial IO was the first one uh, that they really came out with and the one that I um, felt most comfortable with initially. Um, proximal tibia, medial aspect, just where you feel the, uh, the flat part of the bone. Go in the middle aspect. Um, the, it's pretty easy site to hit. There's, it, it, you can have complications. Uh, main complications that we would see would be actually backwalling, so people going out the backside of the tibia. And then the needle would be in the muscle uh, behind the tibia. And any infusion of fluid would be into a muscle compartment, giving muscle uh, compartment syndrome uh, pretty much right away. Um, the, uh, so the flow rate with the tibial uh, proximal tibia can flow about two liters per hour of IV fluid, according to EZIO on their studies, which is a decent amount of fluid. Um, and then it can be a painful site, both with the drilling and the infusion. So recommend using lidocaine for the infusion. So some of the benefits to using humeral head IO 
Um, so the flow rates have been demonstrated up to seven liters an hour uh, of the humeral head. Part of the reason for that is the wider uh, um, absorptive space. So with more uh, marrow present in the humeral head, there's more tissue to absorb the fluid. So you can actually flow more fluid and it get absorbed more rapidly. So seven liters an hour for the humeral head versus two liters an hour for the tibia. One of the other benefits uh, is it's closer to the heart. So just having uh, approximation probably means that our drugs are getting to the heart faster. Um, and studies this has shown to be about 15 seconds for drugs to get from the humeral head to the heart versus about two minutes from the tibia to the heart. So when we're talking cardiac arrest, if you give a drug and you want to wait two minutes before it has any effect at all, the tibia is probably going to give that to you. Um, the problem I have with tibia drugs is by the time it gets to the heart, some of that drug's going to be broken down a little bit just in the blood. It's going to start to uh, go through its half-life. So it's going to be less effective. It's going to be more dilute and just the delay in getting to the heart. So humoral head gets us that blood flow a little bit faster, uh, quite a bit faster. The other thing, uh, some of their studies have shown that the uh, humoral head is actually less painful for the infusion itself um, because it is a wider absorptive area. The infusion in the humoral head is less painful. Uh, EZIO has a video of drilling their medical director and then infusing in the humoral head and he tolerated it pretty well. I don't have any plans to replicate that uh, demonstration, however. I mean, we could call 231 over here and, right. and uh, plant one real quick. That sounds like a not idea. Um, so one of the things that I think has become apparent when we look at the research data for EZIO uh, speed of uptake is when they show some of these fluoroscopy videos, uh, a lot of them are in live patients. Uh, so they've got a volunteer they're going to put, I'm sure they're paying them, I hope, uh, they put them in uh, a fluoroscopy suite and they put an IO in and they take a video of that dye going through. What I think, the piece that I think we're missing is that that changes in cardiac arrest. We're in a low cardiac output state. Uh, CPR is not nearly as effective as our own body's uh, normal circulation. That's why we're looking for a huge uptick in end tidal as an indication that we have uh, intrinsic cardiac function because our heart is more efficient than CPR. So inevitably, uh, the closer you are to the heart, uh, the better that access is going to be. Uh, and if any of you have ever circulated epi through like a varicose vein in the belly versus an EJ, um, you definitely see better uptake through that EJ versus like a varicose vein in the belly. So I think that can probably be extrapolated a little bit uh, in the IO placement as well. Also keeping in mind um, that drugs through IO don't necessarily circulate as fast as IV anyway. So if any of you have brought in that code patient, uh, what is the first thing that one of the uh, code team members asks you for? Do you have a secondary uh, vascular access point other than your IO? And they immediately start trying an IV uh, because the thought is that it's going to have a faster uptake rate uh, through a uh, near venous site or even a central line site. And, I, and to me, uh, an AC uh, IV versus a humeral head IO are equivalent for flow rates um, in cardiac arrest or in a normal flow state. But if I brought you a tibial IO? 
tibial IO is lower. I would try to get other access. So that's been my experience. Every time I brought in a tibial IO uh, before the, the enlightening of the humeral IO, that's the first thing they asked me for was, was an IV. And so, some of the feedback I've had from our providers on the humeral head IO is they're worried about it getting knocked out uh, by other providers on scene. Um, my feedback for that is, uh, you know, if you, you have to be cautious no matter where the IO is located. Um, and often I would recommend doing it on the side away from where the compressor is located. Uh, so if the compressions are on the left, do the IO on the right. Um, uh, pretty much wherever the uh, paramedic is located uh, near the monitor uh, to be able to run the monitor, um, that's probably a good site to have the IO uh, for access as well so the paramedic can push drugs. If there's multiple paramedics, that gives you more options on where to go. Um, but once the IO is in, it's going to have about the same rate of complications, as far as I know, as the tibial. Um, some data says more, some data says less. To me, that means it's about equivalent. So infiltration, uh, dislodgement, um, just uh, not working well. It's going to be about equivalent. But um, I think the rate of flow, the, um, uh, the um, rate of uh, getting to the heart uh, with drugs um, makes it uh, more ideal than the tibia in our cardiac arrest scenarios. Outside of cardiac arrest, I don't care. If people do it to the tibia outside of cardiac arrest, that's great. That's honestly where I go if I need access in a sick patient, um, but I can't uh, get IV access for some reason. I go tibial more often than humeral head. Um, that's more for the patient just to avoid the stigma of having something in their shoulder. But a patient that's unconscious, I have no qualms about going into the shoulder. So, And it's pretty easy to teach as well. So. So I do want to talk about the, the conscious patient placement, um, but I do want to uh, briefly rewind to your statement about dislodgement. So one of the things anecdotally that I've found is extremely useful in preventing dislodgement is to disconnect your pressure bag uh, when moving your patient. So if you're coding a patient on scene, it makes sense to infuse that volume uh, to rule out one of your H's and T's. Uh, but when you're moving that patient, you really don't need that continuous flow out of your uh, pressure bag. You can flush drugs just as easily with a saline flush after you give your uh, prefill. You know, the purpose of that uh, continuous flow is to keep that IO uh, marrow channel open. Um, so if that marrow were to recollect around your IO needle, you can slam another flush, open that channel back up, and get more continuous flow going. Um, but one of the uh, biggest reasons for IO dislodgement has been line snag. Well, that's something that we can rectify very easily just by disconnecting that line. And then that's one connection to the patient that you don't have to worry about when you're moving them. Uh, the other thing that I'll comment about line snag is if you are a true believer in having continuous flow through uh, that pressure bag, it doesn't have to hang up above the patient, you can lay it down on that patient. Um, so that's something that doesn't have to be dangling away from them. Uh, you can package that together and then hang that back up when you get into the truck. And I think that plays into the, the goal of the different segments of care. Initially on scene, we want the patient to lay where they are so we can provide management. When we do decide that we need to move the patient, I, I'm okay with disconnecting as many lines and tubes as possible to facilitate movement. We're not going to be doing a whole lot of patient care while the patient's moving, so it's okay to kind of break things down a little bit. I think probably should still be on the monitor, but otherwise taking things down as long as we are ventilating and we can maintain our access. Those are the goals uh, and maintaining compressions while we're moving the patient. 
And to frame this out for you guys, a very uh, good analog, I think, is, um, so let's say a flight team goes out to a outlying hospital with a STEMI patient, and that patient's going to be a drip and ship. So they've already started them on uh, maybe some heparin or maybe, um, what's the drug that they always uh, put your STEMI, Integralin? Yeah. Um, so maybe they're on Integralin or Plavix any or number heparin, of drips. Yeah. Um a standard of practice for flight services is to disconnect everything and reinitiate all of it in flight. Um, so to get that patient out of that location, it makes more sense to disconnect everything because you can pull them out quickly uh, and then reinitiate everything in flight because really what they need is PCI. So if you think about that, uh, even in your ROSC patient, what they really need is to have whatever caused them to arrest to get that fixed. Um, so a lot of the lines that are connected uh, that are kind of hampering our movement, um, we should be focusing on getting them to what they need, not necessarily all of the lines that we have. So whatever we can disconnect, good. Um, but yeah, I definitely agree. Probably should have the ROS patient on a monitor. Might want to yeah, know yeah. what's going on with that heart. I think that's okay. And and realistically, the cardiac arrest patient, keep them on the monitor too during that, that move. But otherwise, yeah, I think... You don't want to know if they come back? Yeah, you know. Uh, but otherwise, like entitled CO two, honestly, can be disconnected from the monitor. Um, uh, uh, oxygen, maybe, but if it's hampering movement, I think it's okay to take oxygen off for a minute or two. Uh, oxygenation is usually not the proximate cause, so it's usually not the problem uh, in cardiac arrest. So I think taking those lines and tubes down, what is possible um, and practical to facilitate um, expeditious movement without dislodging whatever tubes in place or dislodging the IO is, is actually very helpful. That's something that I'm certainly uh, guilty of is worrying about bagging that patient as we're taking them out of the, the ambulance. Who's got the bag? Who's going to take over bagging? Who's going to do well, in all reality, in the even if it takes you 30 seconds to unload that patient, that 30 seconds of not ventilating them um, is not really that big of a deal. It's the compressions. So if you've got compressions going, then you can burn the time off oxygen. That's that's not as big of a deal. Uh, and especially if it causes an extubation incident, your concern about bagging them inadvertently extubates the patient, uh, that's a huge problem because uh, now you've created a, a dynamic where you had a controlled airway and now you don't. So that's a, another procedure that you have to rectify. And sometimes just prior to movement, I'll hyperventilate a patient a little bit, just knowing that after the movement, we're going to uh, kind of trend in the other direction. So I'll just preempt that a little bit. Okay, so I had a couple questions for you about uh, conscious placement. So you discussed why uh, you would prefer tibial IO uh, in the conscious patient, that it's largely just based on uh, their comfort. Um, but I want to give you um, maybe a for instance, because uh, mm -hmm. this is a, a debate that I've had previously on shift, uh, and I don't know that I really have a good answer for it. Let's say you have a STEMI patient. So you know that they're having, uh, let's say, a uh, anterolateral MI. Uh, they are stable-ish, so their blood pressure is still okay. Uh, they've got a lot of chest pain, um, so they're not looking like they're immediately about to code, but you know that they're going to cath lab. So if you can't get vascular access, would you establish an IO, knowing that the pain of intraosseous placement and infusion uh, would potentially increase the myocardial oxygen demand? but then it would give you the ability to give them nitro and phenyl. So I think in that scenario, the 
IV access or IO access is critical for the patient care. I think it's it's essential that we have that. So even if it do, does cause some pain, I don't think that pain would be enough to have physiologic derangement. Realistically, IO isn't all that painful for people. Um, uh, going through the skin is a needle poke. It's a big needle, but it's a needle. Um, going through the bone has some pain, but it's really the periosteum that's the most painful. Once we're through the periosteum, there's not a lot of pain associated with the drilling itself. And then once we're in the marrow, it's the infusion, and we can treat that with lidocaine. So I think um, um, not getting an IO uh, in the setting of not able to get an IV because you're worried about downstream physiologic changes from the pain, I, I don't really uh, see that as uh, uh, too concerning to me. Uh, you've mentioned analgesia uh, for the IO a couple times. What's your lidocaine dosage uh, for that IO? Uh, lidocaine dosage would be uh, uh, 1 to 2 milligrams per kilogram uh, through the IO up to 40 milligrams is the usual dose. That's what I've seen, so that's what I go by. Um, and then how? Uh, what kind of time frame do you administer that over? Um, I usually push that pretty quick um, to, to open up that marrow space a little bit, but you can slow infuse it over a minute or two as well Ouch. too. But uh, that's one of the maneuvers you can do to kind of open up that marrow space. Um, but uh, it's fine. Um, so I've got kind of a grab bag of questions remaining. Um, what do you think of the fast responder and the fast one? So we discussed that you should not give the easy IO via sternal, um, but you do have the military model of sternal IO as well as the civilian uh, model of sternal IO. Where do you see its role? So I think that role is very limited. Um, the reason that the military uses sternal uh, is because of the higher rate of limb um, uh, in usability. So uh, think about a blast explosion and all of the limbs are blown off. You have no limbs available for use. That has a higher chance of happening in the military with their vests in place. Uh, almost universally, the sternum is still an okay site. Civilian wor world, yes, we have extremity injuries, but it's not usually where all four extremities are horribly mangled. Either isolated injuries or lower or upper or, or combination. Almost always we have at least one uh, extremity that is, is available for you. So it's a little bit different setting. Um, uh, so I think there's a little bit different applicability. Um, and then um, the those sternal IOs are usually manual um, devices, so uh, pushed in. Uh, the easy IO makes it pretty easy to get the, get the, the devices in. And then the flow rates, uh, pain, comfort are a little bit better with the easy IO, I think, than the sternal. Then the other problem with the sternal IO is that's your site for chest compressions as well. So if you have if you have a CPR in progress and you use a sternal IO for CPR, it to me it may hamper either compressions while you're getting it in place or uh, compressions after it's in place. So this is a question that I've had for a while, uh, and if anybody from Physio Control is listening, they are the umbrella corporation that uh, owns seemingly everybody, but. Or no, excuse me, it's not physio control. Uh, Ping owns all of them. So Vitacare, Ping, Arrow, uh, that's the company. I'm sure physio control will buy them out soon. Uh, so if anybody from Arrow is listening, uh, I would love to know if we can do chest compressions along with uh, sternal placement of that device and if there is any complication associated with it. Because I have yet to get an answer. It's not discussed on their website. It's not in any of their fact sheets. Uh, it just seems to be an issue that they are circumventing. Uh, so I guess my question to you, since I've discussed sternal IO, uh, 
what if you can't hit humeral head or tibia? So recently, give you a case, uh, had a cardiac arrest patient, uh, the 45 millimeter needle would not touch bone in either humerus uh, and would not get enough bite in either tibia uh, to secure. So if you're in that scenario, what are you left with? So you're still left with the distal tibia um, in pediatrics, more so the distal fibula but I'm, or femur. But I'm guessing if your tibia is out and your humerus is out, the femur is out too. So realistically for access at that point, it does come back down to IV access if you can't get any of the IO sites. So EJ access would be about it. Um, if you have no access anywhere, then you are back to IM administration. So that's just a patient that has poor um, chances of survival if you can't get any emergent IV or IO access. Well, I would say that I hope this episode brings a little closure to the topic. Uh, we will uh, gather some articles for you guys to peruse, and maybe we'll get lucky and find some videos and some cadavers, um, but I've been having a little difficulty finding the cadaver videos versus the live patient videos. Uh, Dr. Silly, did you have any thoughts before we wrapped up this show? No, I think IO is a really helpful tool that we have in our toolbox. And for me, in a cardiac arrest, humeral head IO or IV are about the same thing. So for my providers, um, I would rather have them default. If they don't see, if, it, if they're questioning at all, just go for an IO right off the bat, good access. If they think they can get a good IV quickly, that's totally acceptable. Um, third in line would then be uh, a distal IO if, they, if the, the either one of those are an option. Well, you can catch all the show notes for this episode at cbcemp.proboards.com. Uh, post some feedback, and we can certainly get a discussion fired up. A reminder that uh, the articles that we reference will now be on the Mendeley app. That's M-E-N-D-E-L-E-Y. Uh, you can get full uh, copies of the articles right there to your phone. You can subscribe to The Medical Director's Always Right by searching for CBC EMP on any podcast player, including iTunes and SoundCloud. Uh, we would love for you to leave a review while you're there. This was Tony Held and Dr. Josh Stilley with The Medical Director's Always Right for Columbia and Boone County Emergency Medical Professionals. We'll catch you again soon.